Okay, let's go. So here it is. This is the first podcast. This is the Steeluke podcast. This is all about life, business, trading, and all the bullshit I've experienced in between. So the reason for doing the podcast is because I've recently made my profile public on social media, and I've had a lot of questions about business, about trading, just about everything in general, to be honest, and people asking for guidance. So I thought it would be best to do a podcast. I can explain about all my trials and tribulations, the businesses, the ventures, the ones that have succeeded and the ones that haven't, and I'll explain those soon. And hopefully just giving you my experience and where my downfalls or my successes have been, hopefully that will help you in whatever field you're currently in at the moment and will help you strive for success. As you'll soon realize, I've always been the type of person to think, fuck it, let's just do this and see where it can go. My wife says that to me all the time. She says, you know, you just do things, you have an idea and you do it. Whereas she will say, well, I want to sit down, I want to understand the consequences, I want to think this through. And that's a brilliant trait, something I wish that I had. But what I just tend to do is just say exactly that. Fuck it, let's give this a go. If anyone can do this, I can do this. And that's how I've started most of my ventures or my businesses. So just to give you a bit of knowledge, first of all, a bit of background about me. I grew up in a small town called Ilkeston, which is in Derbyshire, with my mother, my father, and my brother. At the age of 11, my father passed away of bowel cancer, and so it was my mother that brought me and my brother up. She hadn't had a job before. My father had been a lawyer, so my mum had to go out and get two jobs, and I commend her for that. She had to go out. She had to hustle to get the money to raise both me and my brother because we weren't very well off. So she went out, worked two jobs daily, and I still don't know how she did it to this day, but I think that's what's given me the courage, seeing her do what she had to do at that stage in her life to look after her two boys has given me the courage to realize that I can do anything that I want to do, and that is therefore how I've approached everything that I've done in life so far. I don't know if many people know, but I'm a lawyer. I've had a lot of questions asking me, how and why I got into law. So I'll start with that. So my father, as I said, he was a lawyer and my brother is four years older than me. So when he left school, he followed in my father's footsteps and did law. When I got to 16, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I always knew that I wanted to have a business. I always knew that I wanted to be successful. I always thought to myself, in the future, I won't have to worry about anything because I know I'm going to be successful. I don't know why I kept saying that to myself when I was younger. I don't know why I had that outlook. It's just something that I'd always thought. So when I got to the age of 16, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. That was a bit of a shock to me. So I was talking to my mom, my brother. Obviously, you speak to career guidance counsellors at school. And a decision was made because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Why don't I just do law for a year? Why don't I go to college? do law and then in that time I can actually figure out what I want to do in life. So at the age of 16 I enrolled in college. I was the youngest person to do the law course in the area. I got a job at a local law firm as an office junior. I think I was paid £15 a week cash in hand and I would work at the law firm from 9 to 5 Monday to Friday and then every Tuesday and Thursday I'd catch the bus at 6 o'clock go to Nottingham I'd study in the college from 6 o'clock till 9pm, then get the bus back and get back about quarter past 10 at night. And I did that every Tuesday and Thursday for three years. 
a lot of people have asked me why I've used that route, why I worked and went to college rather than going to university to do a law degree. When I was speaking to people at the time who were doing law degrees, they found it really hard to get a foot in the door because they were going straight into a paralegal position having completed the degree. Now, there's so much competition and they would have had no experience at all of working in a legal environment. So I decided at that age to, first of all, get the legal experience. So when I did have my CV and when I wanted to apply for a paralegal job, I would already have the experience of working in a legal office, which would give me one up on the people that had been to university that had no experience. I was successful in applying for my first paralegal role, and that was a job in Derby. However, at the exact same time, I'd just been offered a position in a professional basketball team in Derby. So first of all, I'll explain how the basketball situation came to be. So growing up, I was really tall. At the age of 16, I was probably about six foot three. And I tried playing football. I tried, all my mates were playing football. I'm, I'm just too lanky. I've got stupid long legs. I couldn't kick a ball to save my life. And it just wasn't for me. However, I loved American sports. And having the height advantage, I knew basketball would be a great sport to start. So I got involved with some local clubs uh, with a couple of friends. Did really well, came on really quickly, went to a load of basketball camps. And then I got an opportunity to go and train with a team in Derby. They had a professional team. But at the time, I believe I was training with the under-16s. No, sorry, the under-17s. And then I went up to the under-19s. And then later on in life, I was offered a opportunity to train with the first team which was the professional team and so I started to train with the professional team the coach at the time saw something in me so actually asked me if I wanted to play a game with the professional team which I did I remember scoring in that first game and that's how I came to that level of playing basketball for the professional team in Derby I also got picked for the England squad uh, but me being me I wanted to play basketball at the highest possible level that I could so Whilst I was at Derby Storm, there was an opportunity with the coaching staff at the time to get a scholarship in America to play at high school in Pennsylvania. This is something that I wanted to take up. However, shortly after a, a reshuffle uh, with the club and the coaching squad, that fell through. But then I had the opportunity to be paid to play for the professional team at Derby. And I remember the time, this is obviously when I got my first paralegal role as well, and the professional team required me to train every evening and play games on the weekend, which meant that my legal studies would then suffer. Therefore, I had to make a decision which one I was going to follow. Now, the professional team didn't pay very much money. And so at the time, after speaking with my family, I decided that I should take the sensible route and go for law because that would provide me with a, a stable income. Whereas the basketball, I wouldn't be able to do for all of my life and the money wouldn't have been that good. After deciding to quit basketball, after playing at such a high level and following the legal career, I still haven't played basketball since. It's just one of those things where I think if I do something, I want to do it to the best of my ability. And now knowing how long it's been since I played, I'd get too competitive. I'd want to join teams again and try and take it as far as I could. And I think at that time, I kind of stopped playing at the top of the height of my game. If I had an opportunity to go to America at the time, of course, I would have taken it. But given that that fell through, it then allowed me to then follow my legal career. Boarding into my legal career, everything was going really, really well, but something was missing. I wasn't too happy about everything that I was doing. I was grateful to be in a fantastic position. I got an opportunity to work with my brother as well. But 
at the time, a friend of mine was doing some acting and he introduced me to his agent who said that they could get me some work. This is always something that I fancied as well. Who doesn't want to be on TV? So the agent took photos. They were all uploaded online. All my details were put in a bio and sent to casting agents. And then literally within about a week, I got a call. There was some acting work available for me. This was um, extra work. So sometimes you had a speaking role, sometimes you didn't. The more words you had, the more money you got paid. Uh, I had an opportunity to be in programs. These are obviously English programs called Crossroads, Emmerdale. There was a police drama on ITV called Dion and Pascoe. Uh, but the the best role that I got was with a it was a film starring Martin Freeman, and there was loads of famous British actors in it, and I was cast as one of the main actresses' first loves, and I remember thinking I get to kiss this actress. This is going to be on the TV. Everyone is going to see it. This is going to be my big break. But the role was for me to pick up this actress, spin around, kiss her in the middle of a theme park. But then at the last minute, the director changed the positioning, which meant that the actress's face wouldn't have been seen. Therefore, this gave an opportunity for her to have a break and for someone to step in in her place. I was absolutely gutted. I already told everybody I was doing this, but then obviously the actress stepped out and I had to stand in instead. I then remember I rang my girlfriend after the scene and I told her I had my first on-screen kiss, to which she responded, you're fucking dumped. <laughs> and that was that, that was that. But um, the film is, uh, it's on Sky, and I watch it every now and again. I've got it in my recordings. And um, it's quite funny to, to look back and, and see that. I still can't believe I was in a film with Martin Freeman. Next acting job was on a, a TV show called Punked for MTV with Aston Kutcher. And I remember that it was a dance audition, and I was asked to dance with some guy's girlfriend and I had to spin around and as I spin around I deliberately rip a skirt off he turns around he goes absolutely crazy and then it's all revealed that it's a wind up but I remember for that I got paid and then also because it was sponsored by Dr Pepper they sent me massive packs of Dr Pepper cans which I'm sick of now because I think I just drank those for months but that was a good show and then as a result of the dancing show for that, I got introduced to sort of the, the street dance scene. And it was at the time where there were TV shows like You Got Served. And then there was like Step Me Up, Step Up as well, which was like a popular uh, street dance movie. And a friend of mine, his mum started doing street dancing classes. So me and him decided to go along to get involved. You can imagine we walked in there and it was just full of girls. It was really embarrassing. Uh, but we got stuck in and actually got really, really good. So on the back of that, we then ended up going to some proper dance classes in Nottingham with a street dance teacher, got really good with him. Um, and then we started going on auditions down in London. We got some really good parts. And one of the auditions we were successful in was a show that was run by Alicia Dixon and Harvey from So Solid. And it was called Bump and Grind. And I think I got through about five of the stages just before the semi-finals and uh the guy who was the teacher he got through to the finals um but after all of that again a decision had to be made we're getting paid for little professional dance jobs and the the goal at that time would be to right let's go down to pine uh, pine studios and do obviously do a load of like professional classes get auditions get picked and, and get paid money on going tour. 
and a, a really good friend of mine actually did that he went down and he's he worked with some fantastic people he's now a, a creative director who's worked with kanye and so many other people but at the, at the time for me obviously we were dancing with people that danced with britney and and the people that were really popular back at that time so i had to make a decision whereas if i wanted to follow that career i would have to go down to london and live in london and go to pine studios every single day uh, but for me, again, the sensible decision came in and said, right, look, you know, let's just stick with law. You've got a really good job. Yeah, the acting was great, but that wasn't really going anywhere unless I went to acting school. Dancing had gone really well, but then I needed to take it to that next level. And I think at the time, given my position, I was thinking, look, I'm going to pursue this because there is potential for me to earn a lot of money in the future. Uh, and sort of my entrepreneur side came out and said right well I know in the future I want to learn this craft and I actually want to start a business and so that's why I stuck with the law at the time after I'd got the acting and the dancing bug out of my system I remember going to my boss and asking for a pay rise I think at the time I was only on 17,000 pounds a year and he basically said we can't afford to give you any more money not even 100 pounds which was a load of bollocks and so shortly after that I quit I handed in my notice, I found another job in a firm in Nottingham. I was paid a bit more money. I was trained some more there. And actually I was doing really, really well. Met some great people in that firm. And I could see, so I was earning the firm, it was about 65,000 pounds a year, which isn't a great deal of money, but I was getting paid 20. And I was thinking, I'm earning this firm three times more than, than I'm getting paid. And I just had a, a thought to myself, that, you know, if I could do this, I could earn this money for myself. I could instantly triple my income. But obviously they had all the contracts, they had all the insurance, they had all the support staff. But after a couple of years of training, I then made a decision to actually quit the job and go out on my own. So I spoke to everybody, like all my close friends at the firm. I spoke to my family. A lot of my friends told me not to do it. My mum told me, do what I wanted to do, sort of follow my heart. If I thought I could make a go of it, then she'd support me. And so I did that. So I quit the job. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I decided to go self-employed. I'd heard a lot of people were doing freelance work for a few firms across the country. So I contacted the firms and I would do the work under their name, but I would work from home. So then I would bill the money and then they would give me 70% of anything that I made. And actually, to be fair, for the first year, I made a really good living. I think I, I more than tripled my salary that I was on previously when I was employed. But I realized that I was working nonstop and that if I wanted to continue with this level of money that was coming in, I would always have to work this hard. I was getting up in the morning, working really early all throughout the day, working at night nonstop. And I just realized that I can't sustain this for years and years and years. Yeah, it was great whilst I was young, but I needed to get people who could do the work for me. So I thought if I can employ someone, I can earn double the money for half the time. So I ended up employing somebody and then I employed somebody else and then somebody else. However, what I didn't take into account at the time was employing three people. I then took on a lot of employment issues and HR issues. And then by dealing with those issues, it stopped me from actually doing the chargeable work. So I knew that it was an opportunity to scale the business, but that wasn't it at the time because it was just me. I was doing work for all these other firms that had the contracts and had the indemnity insurance and had the support staff but it was just me dealing with these three other employees with none of the other support. So at the time I was in contact with two other professionals who were also doing freelance work. And there were two options for me. I could approach one of the firms 
as and become a partner, but I'd have to put money into that firm and then take obviously a share of whatever the firm was making. Or the, but there was an opportunity that was presented to me where I could try and start our own law firm. My business side was finally coming forward. My entrepreneurial side was finally showing itself. But life's not that easy. So then life fucked me straight away. As soon as we had this opportunity, what happens? I get diagnosed with cancer. Now, just to explain how that happened, and then we'll come back to the business side. I was sat in my mum's kitchen, and she just looked at me, and she said, what's that? And I was saying, what? What do you mean? And there was a lump on my neck, a lump that I hadn't seen before. must have been there for a while. And I made an appointment with the GP, and they didn't know what it was. They did a number of tests. They did an ultrasound on it. They did a scan on it. They even poked a needle through my neck to try and pull out some of the tissue to analyze it. They did blood tests. Nothing showed up. And then three months later, I went to go see the GP, and they said they diagnosed me with cancer. And I remember they were saying normally the tumor size for that type of cancer would be about one and a half to two inches. Mine was nearly three and a half four inches in diameter and so the decision was made that they had to operate which is why I've got a big scar right across my neck so they removed the tumor or cyst whatever you want to call it and then that was it I was on medication and then went back to the doctors thinking that all the cancer had gone and then they broke it to me that I had more so then I had to go back into the hospital to have a second operation This meant cutting my neck open again and removing the second part of the tumour. We did this again, and then following that, I had what was called a radioactive iodine treatment, which is where they give me a radioactive tablet to zap out all the cancer in that area. And I remember I was in a room, and there was a Geiger counter in there, a Geiger counter, whatever it's called, which basically assesses the amount of radiation that there is in the room. And I remember that no one would come and see me for seven days, They had the counter in there to identify how much radiation I was giving off. They had a little post box where they posted through food. And I had to be in there for seven days because apparently I was such a danger to people because I was so radioactive. So God knows what it did to my insides. But anyway, I remember after that, that I came out of the hospital and I had this big red cut across my my neck that was all held together with one stitch. And I remember going to the local shop and everyone just looked at me. It was at Halloween. Everyone just looked at me in absolute fear. Uh, But I think it it took me a a few months to get over that. I had sort of restricted uh, neck movement, but I'm on the medication for it now. Um, And, you know, I I can luckily say that it's been five years. So I've been five years clear, which is the point where they say, right, cancer's definitely gone. But I do have to go back every year just to double check as a belt and braces approach, which I'll continue doing. But it just shows you you can get to that point in life where you think, right, things are now going to start to happen, things are going well, and then life just fucks you. That I've fully recovered. There was an opportunity to set up the law firm. So we applied for the contracts and we were successful. One thing I didn't realize at the time or I didn't expect was that the firms that I was doing freelance work with tried to do everything to shut us down. They saw us as competition. So they tried to ruin our reputation. They told us we wouldn't be open for longer than three months and did absolutely everything to make sure we didn't make any money. They stopped paying any payments that were owed. 
And that was probably one of the worst years that I've had because we didn't have any money coming in for that first year. So I just used to have to hustle and try and do anything that we could at the time. I remember that I used to do DJing and I got quite good. And I DJing the clubs on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights. And so I was just trying to do anything that I could to get money in. But we got over that first year and I can honestly say I would go through it all again now looking at what we've created because we've created a business, we've created great jobs, we've been able to offer training to people, bring apprentices in, and the firm, sorry, and the firm has gone from strength to strength. So everything's going well, the firm's thriving, I'm about to get married to the love of my life, everything's going really, really well, too well it seems, and then what happens? Life hits and fucks us all again. Mum gets diagnosed with cancer. And I remember we went to, see, we went to the hospital, my mum had been to the GP quite a lot. The GP didn't know what was wrong. And then we went to the hospital to see a consultant. And then the consultant told us that my mother had a, a tumor in her bladder. It was a really, really big tumor. And the only other option, there was no option for radiotherapy. The only option was to remove her entire bladder. My mum was such a strong woman that she went through with the operation, uh, knowing that it could be life-threatening came out the other side and she was told the cancer was gone like we were over the moon or ecstatic you know that two of us in the family that had beaten it uh but then that was short-lived a couple of weeks we went back to the hospital and they told us that the cancer was back and it had now spread to all of her bones in her body and um, that she was told that there wasn't a lot that could be done it was literally making her comfortable now for the foreseeable future and the next year was just going to and from the hospital, going to my mum's house to look after her to make sure she was okay. You know, I was a mummy's boy. My mum brought me up. She was everything to us. And so, yeah, for that for that year, it, it was tough. Even when you know that time is coming close, you don't. It doesn't hit you until until it's happened. And I remember we were in the McMillan unit in in Derby, and they were absolutely amazing. Honestly, we've raised so much money for them just because of the care they gave to my mother. It was unreal. We were in there, and she'd have ups and downs. She'd have weeks where she was really good and weeks where she was really bad. And I remember she had a week where she was really good. Her medication, she was on morphine, was on point. She just looked like her old self, and. My mum loved Vegas, absolutely loved it. She would go three times a year by herself. I'd go so many times with her. I think I went 12 times with her over the period. Um, but it was just the place that she loved. And she went so much and she gambled so much. She was given her own casino host. The casino host would put up for free, give her free food, free drink the entire stay, pick her up in a limousine, like the lot, like the work. She wouldn't believe it. And my mum was sat in the hospital and she was just saying, look, I'm never going to get to go again. And when she had that good period against doctor's orders, me and my brother booked her a business class flight and we took her to Vegas. And we were there for a week. And you, honestly, you would not think there was anything wrong with the woman. She was running up and down everywhere. She was drinking. She was doing everything. She was gambling. She was having the time of her life. And we came back and we landed. And then that was it. As soon as we landed, she went straight downhill and, and she died a few weeks later. But the doctors did say, they said they couldn't believe we got away with it. We couldn't believe we gave her that one last trip to Vegas. And they were saying that the only reason that she was absolutely fine was because her body was, she was so happy, her body was just running off adrenaline. And I'll always remember that. We've always got some fantastic memories.
but yeah, she, she, she passed away and, and, you know, following that, um, it then gave me an opportunity further to, to pursue my dreams because I know my mum would always say, do what you want to do, pursue what you want to do. And when she, when she passed away, we had a little bit of inheritance, but that inheritance allowed me to invest in myself and invest further in my dreams, which is what I'm doing now. I came across somebody on Instagram called Tori, and Tori at the time was into crypto, and he was the face of Cryptonary. And I found it fascinating. I got into the cryptos, and I remember I, I purchased a course that he was doing, and I remember my first trade was on XRP, and I made £6,000 in a day on my first trade. I think I'd only put in like, I don't know, 300 quid or something, like over leveraged stupidly and made all this money. And I thought, yes, this is it. I'm going to make money. This is going to be fantastic. My life's going to change. And in reality, looking back now, that is the worst thing that could have ever happened to me because the next day I lost again and I lost again. And I, after three days, I lost the entire six grand. But I had this understanding that, well, I, that six grand will come again and then again and then again. And believe me, it doesn't. And it never did. Watching a lot of videos, I understood that I needed to learn technical analysis. And crypto doesn't follow technical analysis very well. It's a manipulated market. It's unregulated. And I saw that Toria was working with uh, two guys, Sean Lee and Amon Nat, and they were running um, Forex classes. So at the time, I used the money that I had to invest in a, a group course down in London. I went down in London and I, I did the course and I got... Obviously, I got the basic knowledge about Forex, about trend lines, how it works, Fibonacci, sort of retail trader knowledge. And I came back and I'd sit in my room and I'd lose and I'd lose again and I'd lose again. And I just keep blowing account after blowing account. And I was, I was just trying so many different strategies and not giving my strategy or my edge an opportunity to play out. So then I, then I purchased other courses. So I did BD, which was a Bernie. BDFX, um, and there were a few other courses that I looked at as well. And I was still losing. And then I just thought, something's got to change. I've got to take action. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep blowing these accounts. I felt like I had the knowledge, but I still didn't have the understanding of price action, where price is going, and why it will react from certain points. I didn't know exactly where my entries would be. I didn't know all about know where to put my stop loss. So then I decided that I needed to investigate this a lot more. So the £10,000 that I got as inheritance, I invested that into Astro. And I went on the accelerator program. Now, I watched a, a number of Sean Lee's videos. I actually sat down with Sean as well. He showed me a lot of analysis. He showed me, um, gave me a lot of a lot of insightful information for, for which I'm grateful. And... But that, I was still losing though. Even though I had this information, I was still losing it. And this is one thing that I found is that you can find out what someone else is doing, but it doesn't necessarily make you profitable. You've got to have your own understanding about price and what works for you. If you're trading certain pairs, you need to make sure you're trading them at certain sessions. So GBP will move in London or uh, USD will move in, in the New York session or Aussie dollar that will move in Asia session, same as GBPJPY, that's going to move in London and Asia. So you've got to work around your own time schedule and pick the certain pairs that work for you. And I remember when I was doing the program, I got introduced to a guy called Riz. 
And Riz has been my mentor for, for the last year. We're great friends. We speak every day. And, and I think between the two of us, I mean, he talks about his trading. I talk about my trading. We bounce ideas off each other. And I think given our discussions and, and what we've been talking about, we've been able to devise sort of a plan that works, a strategy that I can use, um, something that I've tested over the last year. And I would say probably eight months ago, eight, six to eight months ago, I started to become consistent. And I've been doing the same thing every day to build up that consistency. And I can now truly say that I've got a strategy that works for me. The reason I wanted to get into trading is for not only financial freedom, but the freedom it can give you in terms of you can go wherever you want to go and make money. So this is Forex is a skill that it's so difficult to get the skill. This is why 99% of people quit or fail. It's so difficult to get the skill, but once you've got it, it can pay you back instantly within a couple of weeks. And then also you've got a skill for life. So I could go anywhere in the world and make money. The worst thing could happen with my business, but I've still got a, a skill to support my family, to maintain the lifestyle, to maintain the house, to maintain everything, to help my family. I want to be able to earn money to help. So there's no pressure on anybody. And my dream has always been, let's say, to travel to the Maldives and pay for the entire stay whilst I'm there. And we can go anywhere and travel anywhere and I can make money from the palm of my hand no matter what's happening in life. I've had some questions from some people that have said, when do you know when to quit? And I, for me, I never quit. So using the money as well that I got from my mother, I would never, ever, ever quit. No matter if I wasn't profitable for the next 10 years, I would make this work. And that's just because that's the last piece that I have from her. And that's what I invested the money into to gain the knowledge to be successful in life. And if I just gave up, it would, be like me giving up on her or you know me letting her down and not following my dreams so I don't think you should ever quit I just think if you're struggling you just need to do something different you need to maybe get a mentor or speak to somebody get somebody who knows what they're doing who isn't just going to tell you or teach you a course but somebody who is going to sit with you day in, day out, and explain and show you and go through entries go through trade management go through risk management and, and coach you to get your own strategy to see what works for you. And I, I honestly think that is the only way to be successful in Forex. I asked for some questions to go through uh, to answer anything that people wanted to know. I will be doing a full podcast about trading and Forex, but I have had a few questions which I just want to answer now that people send me through through my IG. So one of them was, did you start with a small account at first, 500 or less? Yeah, I did. Started with, like, say, 100, 200, 300,000, blew all of them. But at the time, what I was trying to do, let's say I had a £100 account. I wasn't happy with making 1, 2, or 3%, which would be 1, 2, 3 pounds. I wanted to flip that account and make 100. And that's where people fail. You're over-leveraging and making stupid decisions for trades which then just means you blow your account. So what you've got to look at is you've got to practice risk management. So if, you, if you're risking 1% and you make 3% back on a £100 account, you're risking £1 to get £3, okay? But imagine if you had a £1,000,000 account, and that's my goal for this year. 1% on a £1,000,000 account is £10,000. 3% is £30,000. If you can do a one to three a day, 
then you'll make a ridiculous money and ridiculous returns. So what I would say is build up your accounts as you can when you have money to invest. But again, just aim for those one to threes. Don't try and flip your account. Don't over leverage. Just master getting those percentages. And once you have a, a track record, you can go to an investor. Imagine if an investor invests his money in the S&P 500 and gets gains of 5% to 8% a year. If you can offer 5% a month, that's going to be 10 times more than they're getting a year. So that would be that should be your goal as a trader. Get a track record, use good discipline and risk management, and then you should be able to go and, and get income from an investment from investors. Another question that I've had is how do you handle being disciplined and being labeled obsessive and OCD by naysayers? Oh, God, there's so many naysayers in this business, honestly. I've only just become, become public with my, my Forex trading. I hid it from so many people just because people don't want you to succeed. There's so many people out there that are aiming for you to fail, even close people to you. So you don't need that negative mindset. Just work hard in, in the background. And then when you're doing well, they'll want to know how and they'll be coming to you saying, oh, can you teach me Forex? But, you know, looking at the OCD and, and sort of the discipline, I'm very OCD on my charts with having them clean and also having my areas highlighted. It has to be absolutely perfect. But if I have my areas highlighted perfectly, that then helps me enter the trades easier because I know when it comes to my area, that is a valid area. And therefore, I'm going to enter. I remember, you know, maybe eight months ago, I would say, right, I've got my area. I would only enter my trade if it tapped it. Even if it was 0.1 pip away, I wouldn't go in. And I missed so many trades doing that. So all I would do is just adjust my risk. And I'd go in maybe one, two pips earlier because I'd rather be in the trade with a, a, a slightly less risk reward, still a minimum one to three. I might, might be a one to six rather than a one to seven than missing the trade altogether and missing the opportunity and then wanting to revenge trade. So do you, do what suits you, keep your charts clean, always have OCD with your charts and your levels and you can't go wrong. Two more questions that I'll answer and then I'll save the rest uh, for all my other podcasts. So one of them is in a busy day, how do you find time to backtest and how long do you backtest for? Right, I've backtested for three years straight and that's not an exaggeration. So I've backtested a couple of pairs. I only trade a couple of pairs now and I know how price action moves. Therefore, I don't have to backtest them anymore. Um, I normally get up, spend, I don't know, maybe half an hour on the charts in the morning before the London session. I'll then plot my areas. If I'm going to have a busy day, I'll plot my buy or sell orders, wherever they may be, include my stop loss for my profit so I can get into the trade without having to look to it whilst I'm on the road or whilst I've got other work to do. Um, but if I had a new strategy, if something was presented to me, if I saw something that I thought might be beneficial to my trading plan, then I would first backtest it for at least three to six months. And then I would then have a handful of trades, let's say 100 trades, and I would look to see how consistent that strategy was. Did I get 40%, 50%, 60% or whatever it may be? You need to have a sample of trades to give your edge long enough to play out to actually know if it's worthwhile using it as part of your live trading strategy. And how do I balance everything? So I tend to make a list every morning in my notes app on my iPhone of everything that's a priority and everything I have to get through in that day. And I make sure I check them off as I go through them. I've got so many things to do, I easily forget. And my wife will tell you that. 
Um, so I'll also set alarms for the really important things to make sure that I do them. Um, yeah, and if something comes into my day that's high priority that I have to do, which means I can't do other tasks, I'll just move the less high priority tasks to the next day and do them then. Uh, like I say, analysis is in the morning and at night after the daily closure of the candle. And yeah, just, just having a, a good balanced calendar and having my to-do list for the day sets me up and, and helps me achieve everything that I need to. I'd say just two more questions, but I think this is an important one as well. So the final question is, how do you reward yourself? So for me, I would always say, take money out of the market. Yeah, you can see a thousand pounds on your screen on MT4, but it's not realized profits until you take it. Uh, a good example of something that I had to fix in my strategy was that I would enter a trade on Monday and I'd go three or 4% up by midday. But I wouldn't take it. I'd think, right, I'm in this great trade. I'm going to hold this till Friday. Friday would come around and it would, I'd either be taking out break even or I'd be closing out half a percent for the week. But you need to learn to take profit. So that's what I do now. I have profit targets. And a lot of people will have seen on my IGTVs what I tend to do is now I do the, the shorter positions where I'm in and out of the market within a couple of hours, get a one to three, one to five, one to eight and get out. And then try and do that daily and do that consistently. Because if I can get 3% a day, I can get 720% for the year. So you've got to think of the, the long-term goals rather than, wow, I need that 10 grand now or, or whatever it may be. And how do I re reward myself? Well, I love watches and I love cars. So I bought myself some nice watches as, as an investment. Uh, we've got two Porsche Taycans and we've got a third uh Porsche on its way so keep an eye out that should be here in the next couple of weeks super excited for that I've been waiting about a year and it will be the first one uh, in the Midlands and there won't be another one until at least next year so I'm really looking forward to that one but I would say when you do withdraw your money buy yourself something so make it tangible make it real so the first thing I ever bought with my forex profits was a, a MacBook Pro it's the MacBook Pro I use every single day. It's something which I can see, which I use, which I, I know that Forex makes it possible because whilst you have those numbers on the screen, yeah, that's great. But like I say, you want that money to hit your bank account. And then when it hits your bank account, it motivates you and you can see what's possible. So buy whatever keep, makes you happy. Buy something you can see every day. Buy something you can use every day and that will give you motivation. Well, I hope you've all enjoyed the podcast. I'll be doing a lot more. The next one will be more focused on trading. If anyone's got anything else that you want to know from me, more about business, more about life, more about anything, let me know. Um, but this was just a, an introduction about me, a bit of knowledge about my background, just so you can see what I've been through. Not everything is easy. You've got to keep working on it. I've had so many different paths that I've gone down, but I truly believe that I'm now on the right path. And I think that shows by all the motivation that, I'm giving out all the support I'm having back from everybody. So thank you so much. Please like and subscribe and I'll be back again soon.